Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we are positively obsessed with dog behavior. Join certified dog trainers as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of dog behavior. My name is Kayla Fratt, and I'm the owner of Journey Dog Training, and I'm here today with Aaron Jones, who runs the Merit Dog Project and is one of my writers and trainers here at Journey Dog Training. Erin's a certified dog behavior consultant who's pursuing her PhD in human-animal studies at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. Say hello, Erin. Hi. So in today's episode, Erin and I are going to be talking about separation anxiety. Erin wrote an ebook and created a course for Journey Dog Training that are both all about separation anxiety, and she's got a lot of firsthand knowledge both with clients and personal dogs on the topic. Um, So let's kind of start from the beginning, Erin. Can you tell me a bit about some of the first separation anxiety cases that you ever took? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was living in Alberta at the time and working at a vet clinic. And we were working with uh, local rescue, and we had several dogs come in who were um, relocated from the reserve, and some had likely never even been indoors or cared for consistently by any one person. And this really seemed to correlate a lot with um, separation anxiety cases. And I mean, that's totally anecdotal, but um, it seemed to be the case. And it was a big push for me to learn as much as I could in order to help these dogs and families. And we know behavior has a lot of nuances. And sometimes what we blanket as separation anxiety might be other issues that dogs are experiencing. And it could be anything from frustration to boredom to a medical issue Mm -hmm. to something totally outside the box that maybe just didn't jump out to us initially. So really, I just um, really enjoyed working with these dogs and families in order to create a specific plan for their specific dog. And it was just very exciting for me to, to take on these cases and learn a lot more. So let's backtrack a little bit here and talk a little bit about what separation anxiety actually is and what it looks like. And I know many of our listeners might already know this, but not all of them. Um, So, Erin, can you tell us a little bit about what separation anxiety is and, you know, are there different types of it? How does how does it present? Um, And does some of that stuff matter? Some of those differences, do they matter um, for training plans? Um, So separation anxiety um, is kind of a blanket or umbrella term that I use for a lot of different um, possibilities or underlying causes that cause anxiety when a dog is left either by themselves or separated from a particular person in the family. Um, Certainly, it can be uh, more of a frustration-based scenario. It could also be actually true... um, anxiety about being alone or isolated. It could be frustration about being in a barrier or a kennel or crate. Um, Those Mm -hmm. types of things are often, they often manifest in similar ways, such as um, destruction, um, self-harm, a lot of stress-related behaviors, um, and things like defecation or urination in the house when when they're left alone. And so oftentimes, you know, these symptoms of separation anxiety, um, they are kind of just lumped into this idea of separation anxiety um, as being the problem when there could be several issues going on. And there could be several issues going on at the same time, not just one thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah. And it's I think one of the tough things with separation anxiety when I talk to 
clients, and I would imagine you've had similar experiences, is a lot of times people don't know until or unless it gets to be a pretty serious problem. Most um, definitely. Because if your dog is distressed by being alone and manifests in that distress by pacing and whining, unless you've got a camera, um, you won't necessarily know. But that doesn't mean that that dog is any less stressed than a dog who is eating your molding and digging through your door or barking all day and driving your neighbors crazy. Um, Because, again, your neighbors wouldn't necessarily hear and tell you about a dog who's um, just whining. Yeah, absolutely. I actually had one case that was really interesting because the dog did not really display any distress signals um, or stress signals or any type of distress and would take a Kong, was eating happily um, as his owner left. And just before she came back, he could hear her car pull into the driveway. He'd finish up the Kong and everything seemed fine when she came into the house. However, that period of time when she wasn't there, he paced and whined and stressed um, and was really unhappy. And she had no idea that this was happening um, until she invested in a camera and could actually visually see what was happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that was just kind of a coincidental finding for her. She had she had no idea. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know I um, when I first got Barley, he was doing a lot of counter surfing and trash thievery. Um, And I had several people be like, you know, you should probably get a camera on him and make sure that this doesn't look more like separation anxiety. Um, And what I actually ended up finding was that he would sleep for the first six hours of me being gone. And then at around hour six or seven, he would start getting a little snacky um, Mm. (laughs) is what I would call it, at least. (laughs) Uh, You know, he'd get up, he'd stretch, he'd wander over to the trash can and look at it a little while and then move away. And then come back again five minutes later and sniff it again (laughs) Um, and then break in. But, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily thought separation anxiety, um, but other more experienced trainers who take a lot more separation anxiety cases, um, you know, had the wisdom for to tell me to look. And, you know, in my case, that wasn't that wasn't what was going on, um, at least Mm -hmm. in that instance. Um, But, yeah, it it can manifest a lot of different ways. And, you know, unlike something like aggression, um, most of us know if our dogs have uh, issues with other dogs or issues with people because we're there when it happens. Mm -hmm. Um, So, um, Erin, at what point did you really realize that you liked working with separation anxiety cases? So I think at my time while I was working at the clinic, I really took a keen interest in learning as much as I could to help those dogs that I was dealing with adjust to their new lives. And a lot of them were, um, like we were just discussing, um, were simply exhibiting things like barrier frustration or isolation distress. And it was um, a challenge to not just work with the dogs who were feeling distressed, but to work with their carers who um, also have lives and (laughs) restrictions and personal situations that make dealing with these cases not just challenging, but also really creative. Um, And it's really satisfying to help a dog deal, not just simply with their distress of being alone, but with other anxieties in their lives that often accompany separation anxiety. So that was about seven or eight years ago now. And that started to just become my main focus. (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. I mean, I remember, um, you know, I, like many trainers, I would not say that separation anxiety is my favorite, um, thing to work on. And I remember that was one of the big things that I got excited about when I was hiring, um, my first writer for journey dog training was that you said that it was something you liked working on. Yes. Um, yeah, because, um, you know, it, it can be kind of intimidating to look at separation anxiety and the treatment plans. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that looks like and mm -hmm. some of the upsides of separation anxiety as a behavior problem. Um, so, you know, what's, let's dive into that a little bit. What, what do you like about working with separation anxiety cases? You've already touched on that a little bit, but what are some of your favorite things about it? Um, well, I think <clears throat> most people who are dealing with separation anxiety with their dogs come to me in in tears like literally <laughs> and they mm -hmm. don't know what to do they're frustrated and they're really scared and the best part of my job is to help those people to create a plan and stick to that plan and see real results and it's exciting for both of us and people usually feel relief almost immediately after just their first initial consultation simply because they have a tangible outline of what they'll be doing. They've set some goals and they feel like they've regained some control over that situation. And for me, that's just a really great feeling. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know I feel similarly about working with aggression cases, um, yeah. which sometimes, you know, the prognosis is not what people want to hear. But generally, I feel like I'm able to help people walk away feeling like at least they've got a plan. Um, yes. So what are some of the things that you find really challenging about working with separation anxiety? Oh, um, one of the biggest challenges, I think, is helping carers to see the value in taking their talking to their vets about starting with medication rather than thinking about behavioral meds as sort of a last resort in true mm -hmm. separation anxiety cases, of course. Um, I think there's a huge stigma around mental illness and medication in the human world, or we know that there is, and that really kind of carries over and may actually even be worse in the dog world. And there's a big consumer trend right now for natural remedies and holistic medicine, and, and I'm all for that. But for a dog who's seriously afflicted with anxiety, those will likely do very little to help with behavioral mm -hmm. modification. And if I can help people to see the value in starting with meds right away, we can usually see faster and better results. And meds are not something that most dogs need for their entire lifetime. It's just something that right. will help to, uh, immensely, really, with keeping their dog below their threshold level and making leeway with desensitization to those absences. And... <clears throat> kind of tailing on that a little bit is the challenge of, I guess, um, some vets and their knowledge of behavior. And I was really spoiled with working with a fabulous, with fabulous vets in a very supportive and knowledgeable environment when I was, when I started out. And when mm -hmm. I branched out on my own, it was very apparent how many vets are simply not educated about behavioral issues such as separation yeah. anxiety. And this makes it really challenging for my clients to have a really earnest conversation about what they're experiencing and to ask for pharmaceuticals to aid in behavior modification in cases, of course, that warrant medication. So I think that's that's a bit of a, of a challenge for sure. Yeah, definitely. I would say, 
yeah, I've had similar experiences. And, you know, I, I think it bears repeating um, that, yeah, meds don't have to be a last resort. Um, and often delaying meds is impeding welfare. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we both feel pretty strongly about that. And I, I'm also glad that you mentioned kind of the supplements and naturopathic, holistic sort of approaches because, yeah, while there are times that I absolutely appreciate those, um, I've seen people get more and more frustrated and downtrodden when the Thunder Shirt and the cannabis and the essential oils and, you know, whatever else didn't do the trick and they've poured a bunch of what they feel like is, I mean, is money and time and energy into a problem um, when it probably would have just been much less emotionally and financially exhausting to jump for what we know is most likely to work right away. Yes, most definitely. And I think, too, um, you know, we're then just delaying the process. And these some of these behaviors can become learned behaviors and, mm-hmm. you know, habits. And, and they're harder to deal with if we let it go on and on and on. Um, and so it can also really ruin that relationship that we have with our dogs (laughs) um you know we're hoping for a fix and it's not working and it's very frustrating and I completely understand that um but a lot of unfortunately a lot of dogs are surrendered because of separation anxiety issues Mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely I think you know it's and, and you know let me backtrack a little bit here. I guess what I was going to try to say and then it lost my train of thought is um, it's just it's worth talking to your vet. Um, and if you've got a dog with separation anxiety, opening that door um, and if you've got a vet who doesn't know much about behavior, but there's someone else nearby um it's worth it to see a specialist for this. Um, but unfortunately your trainer cannot prescribe or recommend, um, medications. So you are going to have to go through your vet for this and trainers. This is where it's also really helpful for us to build these bridges with, um, you know, with the vets in our area, whether that's just getting to know them, doing lunch and learns, anything like this that we can help um, bridge that gap. Because again, no matter how much you feel like you've read and researched and know about behavioral medications, you are not allowed to prescribe. And, um, you know, we've got to we've got to figure out how to help these dogs. And we're all on the same team here. Um, but we do have to have the vets involved. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, Aaron, when someone approaches you asking for help with separation anxiety, how do you how do you start? Where do you where do you begin with them? Um, So I first start by acknowledging how they must be feeling and assure them that this is something that we can work our way through. Um, But also that realistically, depending on the dog and the situation, of course, it could be a slow process and there will be inevitable ups and downs. Mm The very first step, again, just to kind of reiterate what we were just saying, is to visit a vet, Um, not just to talk about behavioral meds with with your vet, but also to rule out any maybe solvable medical issues that might be underlying um, what's happening. Um, This could be anything from like a UTI or even something such as visual impairments, for example, um, that Mm -hmm. may have gone unnoticed. And um, so I think that's really important to to figure out with your vet. Um, And then if you are going to talk to your vet about medications, there's, 
you know, things that they need to figure out as well, um, such as if your dog is healthy enough even to have medications or beyond medications um, and what types of medications, because there's lots of different things out there um, that are available. Um, and, you know, are there other behavioral issues that are occurring, that type of thing. Um, so once we've done that, we sketch a plan. I like to let my mm -hmm. clients know exactly how things are going to go, but we break that down into really digestible steps. And that first, um, step, those first steps are all about building a solid foundation, like ditch and ditching the kennel, probably in most cases, um, that their dog has been freaking out in for the past however long and setting mm -hmm. up a new and more, um, open space, if not the whole house, then we kind of use baby gates or um, exercise pens or something like that. Most people have kept their dog under lock and key because of destructive behaviors. But if we're keeping our dogs under threshold level and never leaving them long enough to ever reach that threshold level, then it really shouldn't be an issue for most dogs. Um, and I say most dogs because, of course, every dog is different. Um, sometimes ditching the kennel, though, will make a huge difference. Um, mm -hmm. I also talk about useful technology. So we talked about cameras a little bit, but there are, you know, um, other things that can be useful as well, such as a remote treat dispenser or a camera treat dispenser combo, those types of things. I, I mm -hmm. feel like at the very least, a camera is really important. I think a camera is actually really important for any dog owner, whether they feel like they have an issue with separation anxiety or not. Um, it's good peace of mind at the very least. Um, so that's a big one that I talk to clients about. I never require that they purchase anything, but usually they end up at least getting a camera. And mm -hmm. lastly, we talk about the importance of mental stimulation and environmental enrichment. And that's no different than any other client, of course, that I see. Um, they all get that information from me because to me, meeting a dog's emotional needs is the, uh, the most important tool in our toolbox. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what is, what does a normal separation anxiety case progression look like? And I mean, I think the biggest thing here that at least in my experience is going to vary is kind of the time scale um, which we'll get into, but kind of what, what are some of the tools that you reach for, you know, once we've got enrichment and exercise and a camera and some basic, um, you know, setup and training going, what, what is the actual fixing of this panic look like? So it's just a matter of, um, implementing really slowly, um, Leaving, really, is what it is. So absences, we just introduce that in a very systematic way and a very um, easy way that your dog is never going above his threshold level. And so it might start at, you know, as little as three seconds. Um, and then it might be as little as three seconds and you disappearing behind the wall. <laughs> um, and then mm -hmm. maybe five seconds, 10 seconds. And of course, depending on the dog, it's going to, you know, be like you said, the times are going to vary and how quickly you can move through the process. And it's important, of course, to watch their body language and look for early signs of stress and end a session before it gets too frustrating or stressful for them. Um, and then from there, it just uh, we just keep 
sort of setting goal times and we work our way towards, you know, goal time one is one minute. Yay, we we made it to one minute. What's our next goal time? Um, maybe two minutes or five minutes. And then we work our way towards that slowly. Yeah, yeah, that, that sounds exactly right. So, um, you know, one of the things that I think there are varying opinions about in separation anxiety training is... Um, the use of food as part of, so basically what you've described is desensitization. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so we're gradually exposing the dog to absences and that might be a partial absence. You know, as you said, you might just be moving behind a wall and not even fully exiting. Um, but then, you know, are we introducing food at all? And again, I, I don't know if there's data to say that there's a right or wrong answer here, but what do you tend to do? Um. So I tend to gauge each situation um, differently. I feel like if it's more frustration and or boredom, um, I certainly will actually use food in those situations um, most of the time. For some dogs, I don't because sometimes what ends up happening is they're fine while they have food, but as soon as the food runs out, that's when they start to panic and stress. And so it just acts as a distraction rather than actually counter conditioning them to Mm -hmm. being left alone. Um, However, I've had some dogs where it's worked quite well, where you give them something ahead of time and they get excited about um, you leaving. (laughs) Um, My dog is an example of that. I give her um, like a bully stick before I head out the door and she's super excited about me leaving. As soon as she sees me grab my coat, she's at her treat drawer and is just like, get out of here. I just want my food. (laughs) Um, So that's great. It worked in that situation. Um, There is some some research out there suggesting that desensitization alone is really the best way to go um, and that counter conditioning is not really all that helpful. So I think for the most part, I stick to a desensitization plan over anything else. Yeah, that makes sense. And that seems to be what I'm hearing more and more of in particular with um separation anxiety, but I've actually been hearing more and more of it with dogs with issues with other dogs as well, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. That is. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So let's take a quick break to get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about separation anxiety. Hey guys, it's Kayla here from Journey Dog Training, dropping into the episode to tell you a bit more about what I offer here at Journey Dog Training. Aside from free resources like this podcast, my blog, and my YouTube channel, I offer low-cost behavior help in the form of ebooks and webinars to listeners like you. On journeydogtraining.com right now, you can find a webinar on how to prepare your dog for when you're expecting a new baby, and how to help your dog survive thunderstorms and fireworks. Both webinars are only $10. If you're more of a verbal learner, we've got three ebooks available, one on separation anxiety, another on aggression, and a third on overexcited greeters. All of those ebooks are under $20. If you use the code CONVERSATION at checkout on journeydogtraining.com, you'll get 20% off of your order. And we're back. So one of the other things that we want to talk about a little bit more before we move on to our next question um, is kind of within our normal separation anxiety case progression. Um, 
there's um, there are these things called departure cues. And so departure cues within the context of separation anxiety are basically things that you do before you leave that tell your dog that you're about to leave. So for most of us, that's going to be putting on our shoes, maybe putting on the jacket that we wear to work, packing our lunch, grabbing our keys, all that sort of stuff. And the things that, you know, consistently mean that you're about to leave. And sometimes with dogs that are okay with being left alone for an hour, but not okay being left alone for six hours, they're even good enough at picking up the departure cues that say, I'm going to the store versus I'm leaving for work. Um, And they won't actually become upset when it looks like you're going to the store, but they will start pacing and whining and exhibiting distress signals um, when they realize that, okay, you're definitely going to work now. And that means I'm going to be left for too long. And that means I'm going to panic. Um, so do you do anything to help with these um, departure cues, Erin? Yes or no? Yes, absolutely. So mm-hmm. um, desensitizing to departure cues is is right up there at the beginning of our treatment plan. And um, I was going to say, I had a client years ago whose dog had been experiencing separation anxiety for quite a while. And... Uh, she, she would start showing signs of stress as early as the alarm clock going off in the morning. And oh, so, gosh. yeah, so um, sometimes these things, they start small and then they sort of snowball and you can see subtle signs of stress building throughout your morning routine. And so I think it's important to, you know, work on that a lot, actually. And even mm-hmm. if your dog doesn't seem stressed by your departure cues, I think it's still a good idea to work on it because, uh, you know, we don't want it to become an issue. And so um, Mm -hmm. I I tell clients to do things like pick up their keys or put on their shoes um, and maybe go sit down and watch some TV or um, put on their jacket and go do some emails or something like that Um, Mm -hmm. just to make it part of that everyday life it's not it's not necessarily um it's not necessarily telling the dog that you're leaving um so it just becomes normal yeah absolutely um that makes a lot of sense (laughs) yeah so I think we've already been kind of touching on this for the whole episode but is there anything that you feel like is really important for owners to understand about separation anxiety that we haven't covered yet Uh, Two things, really. Um, One, definitely that true separation anxiety will not go away on its own. So letting them cry it out is really distressing for everyone and will do a lot more harm than good. Um, It's pretty a pretty prevalent misconception. And the number one concern that people have when they come to me is, Should I just ignore them when they're crying and carrying on or should I do something and intervene? Um, And this invariably will do a lot more harm than good, um, letting them cry it out. So um, that's one thing. And um, we also talked about this a little bit, but that cages, so kennels or crates, are not necessarily a good solution for most dogs with separation anxiety. So most people, of course, use them because their dogs are being destructive. However, if we're following a plan and never allowing our dogs to go over their threshold level and we're meeting all of their behavioral and environmental needs, then it shouldn't be a problem for most dogs. Mm -hmm. 
So confinement can actually make anxiety worse. And it's really not a very good solution for separation anxiety, despite what maybe people have been told in the past or what, you know, they feel they need to do in order to minimize the destruction to their home. Yeah, definitely. And and, yeah, I would say in the vast majority of cases and including um, Barley suffered from some separation anxiety when he he and my ex-boyfriend and I first started living on the road and, you know, we were moving once a week. Um, He was much, much worse in a kennel than he was let free. And I know I have run into a couple cases where the dog was better in a kennel Mm -hmm. um, than being loose, but I'm not entirely sure whether or not that was learned helplessness or or what. Um, but I think it's generally, yeah, I, I think it's generally better to let them out and let them and give them, give them a different setup. You know, if being put in the crate is part of the picture that causes anxiety, let's not put them in the crate. And that doesn't mean we're going to let them have access to the whole house necessarily, but we can mm-hmm. use baby gates and exercise pens intelligently yep. to keep them confined as, as needed. Um, I still use a baby gate to keep Barley out of my kitchen. Um, yeah. And he's six and a half. I yeah. don't think that is ever going to stop um, because he still gets into the trash <laughs> if I leave him <laughs> for too long. <laughs> um, one of the other things that I think I get asked um, quite a bit about separation anxiety is, is it my fault? Is it because the dog sleeps in the bed with me? Is it because I mm. cuddle him? Is it because I don't adhere to nothing in life is free? Um is there any evidence behind any of that as far as None. you know, Erin? None. Um, it's I, the one. Yeah, it's not anybody's fault. Um, you can't create separation anxiety. Um, I think it's a wonderful thing to build your bond with your dog. Co-sleeping is never an issue for behavioral issues unless it's maybe resource guarding the bed. Um, but I think that that's a... a terrible misconception and I think we need to be there and supportive for our dogs especially when they are upset and so um, it's definitely not your fault (laughs) yeah yeah I I've had the same experience and yeah I've you know looking into papers on the risk factors for separation anxiety or whatnot I've never found anything that suggests that you know, loving your dog or petting your dog or sleeping with your dog or anything like that has anything to do with separation anxiety at all. And again, our dogs are social animals and they're going to bond with us. That's what we've bred them to do. And that's what we want them to do. Um, that is at least for most of us, why we have a dog. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, while our next question is actually going to dive into some of the things that we can try to do to prevent separation anxiety, even if you missed all of these things. That does not mean that this is your fault because there are so many people who also miss all of these steps, but don't end up with a dog with separation anxiety. It does from the papers that I've read, it does look like there's a decently strong genetic component to separation anxiety as well. Um, and unless, (laughs) unless you bred this dog and her parents and her grandparents and her great grandparents, and they all had separation anxiety and you continued breeding them, Odds are this is not your fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So are there anything that, you know, say we got a new a new puppy. We'll start with a puppy and then we'll, we'll switch over to an adult rescue dog. And you've just brought him home. Is there anything that we can be doing to try to prevent separation anxiety, lower our risk, anything like that? Sure. Yeah. Um, 
dogs are naturally inclined to become anxious or frustrated when we leave them alone because they're social creatures, as you say. Um, and it's really a learning process for all new puppies. Um, you know, they come from being with their siblings all their time and the mom and probably humans around to, you know, being alone and maybe even being left alone for several hours. And that can be really traumatizing for some dogs and uh, for most dogs, really. Um, And the problem could be um, more complicated, of course, when we talk about adult dogs, especially if they've been rehomed or um, have experienced this distress or isolation for a a long time. Um, But Again, like you say, some dogs do have a greater predisposition due to their genetics and their prenatal environment, that type of thing. Um, However, um, everyone can take these preventative measures to ensure that they adjust to being left alone um, because inevitably they are going to be left alone at some point in their life. And the best way to do this is slowly and systematically so that it's never traumatizing. Um, it's, so in an ideal world, everyone would take a few weeks off of work and uh, arrange their schedule to work from home and then, you know, practice these short, um, easy uh, departures. And, um, you know, if you can plan when you're going to bring a new puppy home that you have that option or that you have someone who can come and stay with your puppy when you're not there. That's really the most ideal way to prevent a dog from developing separation anxiety. Um, And we can introduce slowly this way um, safe and sub-threshold absences without leaving them to just panic or cry it out (laughs) um, as some of the older books have told us to do in the past. So that's really the best, the best thing that we can do is just make it really um, a seamless transition um, rather than bringing them home and just expecting them to stay by themselves for a full eight hours. Yeah, yeah, that makes, and I think, you know, it makes so much sense to a lot of us when we remind ourselves that, yeah, these puppies are going from being with a, a litter, um, which I don't know, the first lab that my family ever got came from a litter of 13 um, mm. and the parents and they had other adult dogs that weren't the actual parents of those dogs in the house and the breeder. And they go from that to being alone. Um, And that's just such a huge shift for some of these dogs. And then when we look at shelter dogs, they've just been through the ringer. Um, Even if they haven't been in the shelter for all that long, it's still incredibly stressful for them. Absolutely. Um, So one of the things that I think I get asked quite a bit is, you know, should I get a second dog or a cat or something to try to help um, my dog through this? You know, is that going to help? Most often it does not. Um, If a dog is truly anxious about people being away or being alone, having another dog there usually does not solve the problem. I say usually because, you know, sometimes in rare cases it does. Um, But in most cases, um, your dog is still going to feel anxious and it could even cause your 
other your new dog to feel anxious as well because you know what's happening oh my gosh should I panic as well um and so it doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily going to fix your problem and I've seen that I've seen that a lot actually where um people call me um to come and see their dog and they've already gotten a second dog because they thought that would help and it just hasn't yeah yeah I would agree and you know if you really want to try it um consider fostering first and see whether or not it's going to help um yeah I mean I think you know going back to what we started talking about with there are just different types or kind of flavors of separation anxiety you know some dogs it's a specific attachment to the specific owner I've had clients Mm -hmm. before where Um, you know, I was like, okay, let's just see, I'm going to stay here with your dog in the living room and you're just going to go outside for two seconds. And even with me standing there and the owner only being gone for two seconds, um, that dog jumped up on the door and urinated on himself. Um, so having me there didn't help at all. Plenty of dogs are just fine as long as there's a human there. And then I've, I know two dogs personally, um, one that was helped by another dog. And the interesting thing in that case was that was a dog that was not helped by another human, Mm. but the other dog helped. Yeah. I don't know. You know, (laughs) I've never seen that before or since, but there was a dog, um, that I worked with briefly that was not helped by having other people around, but was helped by a dog. And then I also know, um, another dog, and this was actually the very first dog that ever got me into training, um, she was helped by a cat. Um, she was yeah. totally fine with any people around, um, but she was not fine if she was totally alone. Um, and a cat did the trick for her, which, again, I haven't heard all that many cases of a cat doing it for a dog. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. So, eh, you know, I think the bottom line with, with getting another animal is, you know, remember that that also means you've got that other animal. That other animal might have issues. As we said, separation anxiety could end up being contagious. If you really, really want to try, I would strongly recommend erring on the side of fostering first mm-hmm. um, before you make the full commitment to, you know, potentially having two untrained dogs in your home. Yeah. Um, so is there anything that we want to say as we're kind of closing out here about the science, any cool papers that you've read or any other kind of data that you want to bring up so that we, we can go over what the science, as far as we know, um, is on separation anxiety? Yeah, um, there's a few things for sure. There's been a lot of studies on separation anxiety. Um, We know that um, the probability of dogs who have noise phobias also um, having high or having separation anxiety is pretty high. Um, So there's some type of link there. And it could be equally, this is interesting because it could be equally important to help dogs with separation anxiety overcome their noise phobias as well. And I mean, it makes Mm -hmm. perfect sense, especially if, you know, maybe white noise will help these dogs a little bit um, or that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And this has been found in multiple studies. And there's also evidence to support that separation anxiety can also be highly uh, comorbid with other forms of anxiety as well. So it's important mm-hmm. to really address the whole picture, the whole dog, which I think is sort of the theme of what we've been talking about <laughs> this whole time. Um, so, yeah, so there's that. And we also know, of course, um, I, we started off talking a lot about medications and we know that um, there are anxiety medications that when used in conjunction with behavior modification 
can significantly reduce separation anxiety in dogs. Again, there's several studies showing the efficacy of behavioral meds, particularly Mm -hmm. clomipramine, for aiding in the treatment of separation anxiety. Um, We also know, so I read a a paper actually quite recently um, that showed that systematic, well, we know that systematic desensitization is the most important element of behavior modification for reducing that um, anxiety. And this is the main component. And the study that I read recently um, showed that even when it was done sort of imperfectly by, (laughs) by owners, it could really still help to improve and alleviate the distress of separation anxiety, which which I thought was pretty interesting. And that was over other forms of behavior modification. That's um, really interesting. Yeah. I haven't read that paper yet. Yeah. Um, and then just this morning, actually, I came across a brand new paper. Um, it was a study out of University of Lincoln. And they found that four main forms of distress for dogs when separated from their owners included um, a focus on either getting away from something in the house, wanting to get to something outside, reacting to external noises or events. So, I mean, we already kind of knew that um, from previous studies and a a form of boredom. Um, Again, that's that's. you know, a pretty obvious one as well, because there's a lot of destruction that happens with dogs who are bored. Um, But I think this really just solidifies the idea that separation anxiety is really just a blanket term. And there could be one or more underlying factors at play. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if you you were at the IABC conference the year that this was shown, but there was a, and I'm, I'm forgetting who gave this talk, but there was a great talk kind of about history taking and the importance of it. And they showed a video of a dog that, um, you know, they came to the trainer for separation anxiety because the dog was barking up a storm and destroying the house. Um, I think particularly couch cushions. Mm. Um, and so, you know, they were like, all right, before we start training, let's go ahead and um, set up a camera. And what they found was that the dog would sleep on the couch for, you know, similar to Barley, eight out of, you know, seven hours and 45 minutes out of (laughs) the eight hours that the owner was gone. And then there was a period of time where the dog would kind of go frantic Mm -hmm. um, and do a lot of the destruction and the barking that the neighbors were complaining about. And the neighbors, I think, had been kind of exaggerating about how long the dog had been barking. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) But, you know, the point being, it looked a lot like separation anxiety, you know, destruction, barking, et cetera, while the owner was gone. And basically what it ended up being was that that was the time period when a neighbor used to come home who would visit the dog. And I think the dog could still hear the neighbor coming home, but the neighbor was no longer visiting the dog and the dog was basically becoming frantic and frustrated um, and, you know, exhibiting all these unwanted behaviors um, at that time because he could hear um, hear the neighbor. So yeah. anyway, I think all of that, kind of, yeah, really interesting um, goes to show that, you know, the camera is really helpful because if they had done a desensitization approach and, you know, gone with a really solid separation anxiety plan, that would not have fixed this problem. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I don't remember, I think they ended up just having the neighbor come visit again. 
perfect. I think I think she I'm I'm like I'm spacing a little bit. I'm doing a bad job with the story because it was several years ago at the IABC conference. But I think, you know, she had been getting paid to come visit the dog while the dog was a puppy um, and help the dog through the day. And then once the dog got older, um, they had stopped somehow. I don't quite remember. But, you know, the point is, it's not always what it looks like. And sometimes it's, you know, delivery truck drivers or a dog being bored or whatever. And, um, you know, keeping track and video is we just can't emphasize video enough. Yes. Um, Okay, do you have anything else to add before we wrap it up here, Erin? Oh, gosh, no. I think we really covered just about everything. <laughs> awesome. Um, so thank you so much for making time today. I know it's Erin um, is in New Zealand and I'm here in Montana, so the time differences have actually not been as bad as you would think, but we have yeah. had have had to reschedule a couple <laughs> times. So I really appreciate it, and um, we love your support and your wisdom. So where can people find you, both online and in person? Um, well, in person, I'm at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand Center for Human Animal Studies, and um, I'm in Christchurch, and online, uh, Merit Dog Project, um, so it's Merit Pro- Dog Project, uh, sorry, it's MeritDogTraining.com, but Merit Dog Project on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Awesome. And I'm Kayla Fratt. I'm the owner of Journey Dog Training. Uh, You can find us both online and in Missoula, Montana. And you can find specifically the ebook and course that Erin created on separation anxiety at journeydogtraining.com. Either hover over over the ebooks or courses tab to find the one you want. Course is more expensive, ebooks cheaper. They both cover relatively similar topics, just a little bit more in depth with the course. Um, so before we go, make sure that you guys subscribe to Canine Conversations wherever you find your podcasts. You can find episode notes and bonus materials, including we'll make sure to link to those studies that we talked about um, at canineconvos.com. You can also contact us at hello at canineconvos.com. We love hearing from you guys, comments, episodes, suggestions, critiques, all that sort of stuff. Um, send it along. And it's always canine all spelled out. So not letter K number nine. You, you got to type the whole word. <laughs> um, and yeah, as I said, we love hearing from you. Our theme music is called Funny Song and it's provided royalty free from bensound.com. Our audio is mixed and edited by James Eady at beheard.org.uk. And finally, our logo is from Walker Hooper. You can find his work on Instagram at walkers underscore username. Thanks for listening. Bye.